Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where my guest tells me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule, four things that they cherish, and one thing that they wish they could forget. So let's see what that produces with my latest guest, who is the writer, journalist, and academic Remy Adekoya. Dr. Remy Adekoya is Polish-Nigerian. He's currently lecturer at the University of York, where, apart from teaching, his main research interests include the politics and emotions around identity in the 21st century and its role in international relations and development issues affecting Africa. Now, I know I haven't the faintest idea what I've just said either, but I promise you he's fantastic. Before joining academia, Remy was a political journalist and has written on national and international affairs for The Guardian, Sunday Times, Washington Post, Politico, Spectator, Unheard, and Standpoint, among others. He's provided socio-political analysis and commentary for CNN, BBC Television and Radio, Sky News, Al Jazeera, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, Talk Radio and Times Radio. Again, amongst many others. He was a regular columnist for Business Day, a Nigerian daily, and a former political editor of the Warsaw Business Journal. Remy also sits on the Home Office Strategic Race Board as an external expert. He holds a PhD from the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield, as well as an MA in Law from the University of Warsaw. Remy's written a number of books, including Biracial Britain, What It Means to Be Mixed Race, and his latest book, It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth, How the Economics of Race Really Work. Remy is a fascinating man, with a fascinating history and perspective on the world that makes him almost unique, so regular listeners will wonder if I may have bitten off more than I can chew, not for the first time. Luckily, Remy is the expert. All I have to do, like you, is listen. So I hope you enjoy his choices for the five things he wants in his time capsule. Here is Dr. Remy Adekoya. Hello, 
It is all crazy at the moment. I think mm. the whole everything. Everything, everything is crazy. no. We're 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 living in you know some kind of flux basically. Mm. Clearly, sort of, we're not living in the world we used to, but we're not quite sure what kind of world we are going to live in. So we're some no. somewhere in between, right there. Sort of the feeling, and you feel this in sort of you know politics, economics, culture. You know, almost everywhere. You know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Do you know, I was reading through some of your stuff the other day mm. and absolutely, it completely absorbed me. I suddenly realised I'd been reading it for hours. Mm. Some of your essays, which are really good, and I'm, I've ordered your book. Oh, thank you. Uh, because I just find your viewpoint on it is really sort of unique, mm. but it seems to me to make complete sense mm. that we're, we're sort of looking at the thing the wrong way. Mm. And I think that is true of so many things in the world mm. today. Mm. In a way, we're applying an old-fashioned view of the world to so many things that have changed. I think so. I think so. Mm. And generally speaking, I think, that, you know, the perspective one has uh, living here in the West, you know, irrespective how you look or, or, or what religion you practice or your skin color is, you know, it's going to be very different because simply the, you know, the economic standards of living here are pretty much unparalleled, you know, anywhere else aside, you know, Japan, Singapore and, you know, Kuwait, Qatar and a few of mm. those other sort of, you know, really singular places. Which, yeah. which you can highlight, you know, and that creates a fundamental difference in sort of, you know, what do people wake up thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. If you wake up every day thinking, how am I going to feed my children? The world is a very different place. It's a very, to, a very different place. I wonder if someone will get thrown off Love Island. <clears throat> exactly. You know? yeah, exactly. It's a very different world. Yeah. I mean, would you mind if I quoted some of the things that no, I No, I'd would... be happy. No, that would be fantastic. I mean, I mean, I know in a way this is not really what we were going to talk about. Mm. Oh, Maybe you may bring this up as one of the things you want to put in the time capsule. But it was things like really shocking things mm. that I don't think people in the West think about. Mm. For example, the GDP of South Africa, yes. which we all think of as being a very wealthy nation yes. with 60 million people, yes. is smaller than the GDP of Ireland yes. with 5 million people. Yes. Now that's, to me, that's quite shocking. Yes, yes. You suddenly realise actually that as an African nation, mm. South Africa is regarded as being successful and wealthy. Yes. But as a world nation, yes. clearly not. Clearly not. No. And, and other things like um, the household income, mm -hmm. that's another thing that I found really shocking, mm. actually. Um, North America and European households together account for 57% of the world's total estimated household wealth, $464 trillion, despite the fact that they've only got 17% of the world's adult population. Yes. That's yes. terrible. That's terrible because that's a mess. So we're talking about, you know, like, like, like I wrote in the book there, you know, it's not about whiteness, it's about wealth. We're talking mm. about, you know, poor countries of poor citizens. Yeah. So, you know, so you have the countries themselves, the governments themselves are pretty poor. You just mentioned South Africa. You know, mm. South Africa's national budget and one of the highest on the African continent, if not the highest, actually, yeah. is roughly equivalent of $100 billion. That's the annual budget of the South African government for the whole year. The annual budget of the British government for the whole year is 1.1 trillion pounds. And these are countries with a similar population. South Africa has roughly 60 million people. The UK has 68 million people. And yet mm. the UK has 13 times the national budget of South Africa, which is pretty much the wealthiest um, uh, country on, on the continent. You know, on the NHS alone, 
the UK spends roughly 180 billion pounds a year just to keep the NHS going. That's yeah. what it costs to keep the NHS going, 180 billion pounds a year, which is way more than the entire national budget of South Africa, you know. Amazing. I mean, really disturbing. I mean, I think we think of lots of places as being sort of similar, not quite as well off, yes. nice places to go on holiday. Yes. Uh, things are slightly cheaper there. It's rather nice. Yes. But it's just a completely different outlook for these people. It is. And so many parts of the world, their view of the world is totally different to ours. And the idea that we're so European or, in fact, to a large extent, white dominated country centric yes i think is is something that absolutely has to change in our viewpoint of how the world works i mean there was the other i think maybe the most disturbing thing in something i read of yours was that oxford university yeah. uh, this is about education obviously mm -hmm. oxford university's budget for 2021 22 was 2.9 billion pounds yes. which is higher the Nigeria's education budget. Budget, exactly, yeah. And that's a country of over 200 million people, the largest <laughs> black nation on earth. And that just tells you, yeah. that just tells you exactly where we are. Even, you know, the, uh, in, that's Oxford University. And of course, Oxford and Cambridge are the wealthiest universities, but even the budgets of other universities. So where I work, you know, University of York, which is mm. obviously not as affluent a university as the University of Oxford, but we still in that same year had roughly a budget of 421 million pounds. And then yeah. you look, compare that. So that was roughly equivalent to a third of the entire education budget of Nigeria. And that's the University of York, mm -hmm. where I work. And, so, and there's yeah. loads of other universities like that in the UK that have budgets, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred million pounds. Yes. Know. And for a long time, people have been saying, why do we keep sending this money yes. to these countries? I mean, to a large extent, these are countries that made us rich. Yes. And, and uh, as if we don't owe anything back. It's weird, isn't it? There's definitely that kind of view. What's even worse, I would say, is that actually that view does it, it, it even sort of sometimes, look, there's definitely lots of people working within the UK sort of, you know, development field, uh, both in government and out government, who have good intentions with regards to mm -hmm. improving the lives of people all over the world. There's lots of really good people there. I'm not talking about the people we see on TV, you know, your ministers and all that. I'm talking about the people who work in the actual offices yeah, uh, who really want to do good in this world. And so that needs to be said. Uh, however, on the other hand, during the Cameron government um, period, you know, there was a strategic decision taken that UK foreign aid now would no longer be sort of revolve around sort of humanitarian needs, but would be more strategic. What does that mean? That means that the UK now today essentially targets its foreign aid at countries that are growing very fast, developing countries that are growing very fast and expected to be quite wealthy in the future. For instance, mm. India, mm -hmm. not because, you know, the way it's presented that all be all, why should we be sending aid to India? You know, India is already, you know, growing, et cetera, et cetera, as if it's some kind of favor. It's not. It's buying goodwill. Yeah. From the government's point of view, like I said, I'm not talking about the point of view of those people sitting in the offices actually doing the everyday work who want to do good. But from the point of view of the strategic people, the people who run the government, it's a strategic investment. It's economics. It's economics. They're like, look, let's, yeah. let's, you know, let's put some money the way of these countries that are already growing, that are already doing well. The Indias, mm -hmm. the Indonesia, some foreign aid even goes to China, for God's sake. Some foreign aid <laughs> even goes to China, for God's sake. So, you know, it, it's about, let's put it there because, you know, that 
cements our relationship with the government there, buys us some goodwill there. You know, people on the ground say, oh, you know, the British are funding this, that kind of project. You know, it's buying influence, but it's strategic. Mm. But people don't think it, they don't realize that. They just think, oh, you know, why are British people being so gullible and sending all this money to the likes of India who are already growing, you know? Yes. I mean, if they were looking at gullible, they may have thought that actually just sending aid for humanitarian reasons yes. was being gullible. Yes. But, but clearly not. Mm-hmm. Clearly, if the world is going to work, eventually it will be clear that it's not fair. Mm-hmm. It's not right for people to have that enormous discrepancy between their income and somebody else's income. Of course. Eventually, you are looking at a world where people say, well, enough is enough. And unless you actually act, I think, in some sort of um, well, even way, some sort of equitable way, you're in for trouble. And, you know, there's the fairness argument, which is a moral argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also the practical argument I would talk about, which is an argument, I, I would say, it's not just that it's not fair, it's not sustainable, really. Right. It's not right. sustainable because what you are going to have is millions of people from the regions of the world that are the poorest essentially trying to move to the regions where they feel there are better economic opportunities, You know, that's the way it's going to work because, you know, many people are not just going to sit down and condemn themselves to a life of poverty and their children to a life Mm. of poverty if they think there's a chance they might make a better life for themselves elsewhere. Yeah, the idea that they'd say, oh, well, it's just my bad luck. Yeah, you know, some people will do that, but many won't. You know, and and that's why there are people risking their lives today trying to cross the Mediterranean, you know, just to get into Europe, even though they know all the dangers involved. There there was one um, uh, survey which I cited um, in the books, None About Awareness About Wealth. It was a UN survey conducted in which they spoke to almost 2,000 people, 1,920 people or so, who'd come into Europe from various African countries and who'd come Mm. to various European countries through that Mediterranean route. Yeah. And these were people who all admitted that they didn't come because they were fleeing political persecution. They came for economic reasons. And they Mm -hmm. were asked, okay, uh, would you repeat that journey today, even though you now know the risks involved? And out of that close to 2,000 people sample, 93% of them said yes. They would repeat the journey today, even though they now know Mm -hmm. the risks involved. Which just shows you, you know, the lens people will go to to try and survive. And it's not just about surviving. It's also about trying to give their children some kind of future. Absolutely. Because a lot of people, when they come to the West, it's not even really about them. The 30-something-year-old, 40-something-year-old people, when they come to the West, it's not really about them. It's for them coming here, working, saving up some money, sending to the family back there. Uh, Hopefully Mm -hmm. I can send my kid to school, et cetera, et cetera. That's what they're really doing it for. The 30-something-year-olds, 40-something-year-olds, 50-something-year-olds who come here. Yes. And you see that all the time. I live in an area where most of the shops and most of the takeaways and everything are run by people who are doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got a man who, he's one of the nicest men I've ever met, I have to say. And he runs a fish and chip shop around the corner from me. Uh, I went there last night to buy fish and chips. He immediately said to me, how is your grandson? Mm -hmm. Now, my grandson is autistic. And every time we go by, my grandson says, can I go and talk to my friend? Mm -hmm. Because this man gives him time. He's incredibly kind and thoughtful and interested in him. And he's doing it entirely for the fact that he's supporting his family back home with the idea that eventually they will be able to better themselves and not have to work in a fish and chip shop. Exactly. 
That's yeah. it. And that's nothing but admirable, mm-hmm. I think. Of course, of course. Generally, I mean, that's how that's how capitalism essentially, you know, was built. Yes, and you can't blame people for it because mm-hmm. we push the idea all the time. Mm-hmm. If you make the effort, you will succeed. The American dream is, you know, I can do anything. I can go anywhere. Well, why should that dream not be the dream of people who don't live in America? Of course, especially mm. that, you know, the, the world that has been created and which was to a large extent created uh, by the West is, you know, this capitalist world we live in and whatever anyone thinks of capitalism, that's, that's a separate issue. That's not, you know, sort of, that's the world we live in. Yeah. Um, is a world which runs on money, essentially. That's the, that's the currency. That's the, that's the universal language. That's the one yes. universal language we, we, we have now. And so essentially, you know, if you, you don't have money or you have very little money, you're simply not going to be able to do much in this world. Mm. You know, that's, mm. that, that's just the world we live in. Yes. Yes. No, I think that, I mean, the title of the book says it all. It, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not about being white. It's about how, how much money you've got. That, that's that's the thing that gives you status and gives you position in the world. And in a way, puts you in a position where you're the person that people listen to. Of course. When you say something. Of course, because they need something from you. Yeah. That's usually the way it works, especially if they don't have, you know, those who don't have, you know, how are they going to have? They can only have by cooperating or working for those who have, mm-hmm. or getting from those who have. That's the only way yeah. it's going to work for them. And then, so obviously, you know, I, I, I remember I, I had a chapter where I talked about international influence and how things work at these, you know, sort of UN forums and these, you know, international sort of, you know, forums. And of course, it's the countries that are rich that can come in there and say, look, we think this is the way to find, you know, everyone brings their ideas in. I spoke to a Nigerian diplomat um, for the book and he says, look, when we go in the African delegations, we have our own ideas for how to fight, you know, climate change, you know, how to build a more equitable world or how to deal with issues in the financial industry or how to stop the illicit flow of guns or capital from here to there. We have our ideas for all this. But, you know, when we come mm-hmm. to these uh, meetings, we state our ideas, he told me. And he said, you know, the, the Western, the rich nation um, delegation, they listen very politely to our ideas. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the presentation, one question is asked, OK, who is going to pay for this? Uh, and when that question is asked, he told me, we, the African delegations, usually fall silent because the truth is we don't have the money to pay for most of those things. No. And so what happens, he said, then the rich nation delegations start presenting their own ideas for solving these problems, climate change, whatnot. And he says, at the end of the day, we are left with a choice. We can either go with their solutions or have no solutions at all. Mm-hmm. So obviously, we end up going with their solutions anyway, you know, even though he said they will, of course, make some concessions to us here and there. So we can also save face when we get back home and, you know, present to the people that, you know, we're able to negotiate this or that. But at the end of the day, it's it's a little bit of a sort of a a theater act on our part where, you know, just trying to save because the truth is, you know, we can't make the decisions because we don't have the money. No. Thank you all for coming. Now be quiet. Exactly. But of course, that also applies. And I heard you talk first. And the reason I asked you on here is because I was so impressed with you talking at the Kite Festival. Yes. That's where I saw you. And I remember you saying one of the things that that influence does, what that, that power of wealth does, is it makes you the centre of decisions that are really nothing to do with you. Yes. Things you can't really influence. So for a prime example of that, of course, is race relations, is how to yes. deal with racial prejudice. Yes. And in fact, that's not a thing that should be decided by the, what, 90% 
white population of Europe. Yes. It's a thing that should be decided by the populations where the majority of people are black. Yes. And what I was trying to argue in the book, because I, I was trying to, on the one hand, show sort of Western audiences the realities most of the rest of the world sort of live with and live in. But I was also trying to show non-Western audiences, you know, Africans and, and other people also, sort of where the where the source of our weakness lies. Right. And that the source of our weakness lies in us not having that collective wealth. And that is why in the first place, we migrate to other countries that are wealthier. Mm-hmm. That is why in, in the international sort of arena, when it comes to the UN, etc., we fall silent when it comes to the time of deciding who to pay. If we had the wealth, we wouldn't have to wait for the white man to decide where, you know, what is going to be spent. We, we simply <laughs> yes. wouldn't, you know. We take no. the money and spend it where we want to spend it. You know, that's the, that's the way course. things work, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I'm trying to present the thing that, you know, there's, you know, sort of, um, but in the meantime, of course, w- this country doesn't go to Africa and say, look, how do you think this will be best solved? We don't go to the African nations where yes. most people live. Yes. No, yes, of course. And, and, you know, there is a whole sort of arrogance that wealth brings. And it brings it, you know, to everyone, you know, because wealth is connected with power. And as, we, as you know, they say, you know, power corrupts. Mm. And it corrupts everyone, you know, whether you're white or black or brown-skinned. It's human nature. When you've been used to power when you've been used to being the one who make, takes the decisions, you find it difficult, you know, to listen to other little people there, you know, saying mm-hmm. this or that. It's, it's a natural thing, unfortunately. It's part of our human nature. And you find it in, you know, dictators all over the world. You find it in elites all over the world, in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in Europe and everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people easily get used to things. And when people get used to being in that position where, you know, I'm the one who decides or we, you know, me and this group of people, we're the ones who decide, you take it for granted and it it seems natural. It really seems natural to you. You don't even think you are doing anything wrong. You don't don't think you're doing anything wrong. It just just sort of comes naturally like, yeah, well, you know, that's just how it works. You do it without thinking subconsciously, you know. And because the the West has has had that world for centuries now, People have got, they've gotten used to the idea that, you know, if there is a world issue out there, aha, there is this issue. So, for instance, climate change, aha. So, you know, we're the ones probably going to solve it. We're the ones who probably know how. We're the ones who probably have the resources to solve it, which in this case would be true. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just the way it goes, you know, yeah. and the system just continues like that. So it's one thing I try to avoid because I think it is counterproductive is to personalize issues. Or even to sort of, you know, attach um, particularly negative behavioral attributes to this or that racial group or this or that ethnic group. Yeah. Because that's really not what this is about. This is really about human nature. It's about Mm -hmm. human nature, power, how those who have had power for a long time behave and get used to it. And how those who have not had power for a long time also behave and get used to it, to the fact Mm -hmm. that others decide for them. Yeah. That's unfortunately also a reality. When people have been powerless for a long time, they get used to it. And they get used to the idea that others decide for them. You know, that's why dictatorships can thrive in countries for 30, 40, 50 years. And people wonder, you know, why don't these people organize a revolution? Yeah. Why would they live under such an oppressive dictatorship? Sometimes that doesn't even deliver economic benefits because Chinese dictatorship at least delivers economic benefits. But there are many dictatorships that don't deliver economic benefits. And people live there and you think, how does this work? Why don't people revolt? You know, they don't revolt because they've gotten used to it. Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. 
when you read your material, those imbalances are clear all the way through. The very fact that the population of Nigeria is, was it five times larger than the African-American? African-American, yes. There's roughly, um, African-Americans constitute 13% of the US population, which comes out to around 40 million people, mm-hmm. give or take. And there's, um, at this moment, um, it's estimated there's around 215 million Nigerians. So there's five times more Nigerians than African-Americans, you see. And so my perspective on race was, I grew up in Nigeria, born to a Nigerian father, Mm. you know. But here in the West, the whole sort of discussion on race is very much focused on, you know, the the African-American sort of experience there in America and then the black British experience here in Britain. And this is seen as covering that wide sphere known as race relations, you know, mm. when it's just a tiny, we're talking about a tiny segment of the black population that lives in this, in, in these two countries. And, you know, and, and one thing that always surprises me or that, that, that surprised me when I, when I moved to Britain eight and a half years ago is that this country is paradoxical in many ways. And one of the ways it's paradoxical is that despite the fact that it's a very international country, where people are coming in here from all over the world, from China, Brazil, Portugal, India, Gambia, you know, every day and going to other parts of the world every day. Mm-hmm. And the sort of focus of public debate here can be quite parochial in the sense of focus only on that sort of a, a narrowly understood scope of, of what British society constitutes. Yeah. Yeah. Forgetting that, you know, there's millions of people living in this country who came here last year, two years ago, three years ago, from very various parts of the world. There's people who come here and go out. They come here, they do business and they go out. These people are also all involved in this thing we call race relations. Mm -hmm. And they're coming in here with, you know, their own ideas, sort of their own interests, their own feelings, their own sentiments. And these are often not encapsulated in this whole discussion, which is hard here when we talk about, you know, race, you know. Yeah. So they don't feel part of it at all. So they don't feel part of it. They feel, you know, it's, it's like, oh, you know, these guys are talking about something. You know, this doesn't even affect me. It's not even what, it's not even what I'm thinking about, you know. No, no, of course not. Oh. Well, there we are. We could talk about this. Well, I mm-hmm. could listen to you talk about it for hours. Yes. I think it's a fascinating view on things. And something that unless it's pointed out to you, you don't instinctively see it. Sure. You just don't. Sure. I mean, to me, I, it was a revelation. Mm. And, and I'm, you know, 65. I yes. went, oh, of course. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, no, only 3% of, of the actual population of black people in the world live in America and, and, and Britain. Britain. Yes. What about everybody else? Exactly. Fascinating. But, Remy, I'm going to talk to you about the things that you choose yes. to have in a time capsule yes. and see where that takes us. Okay. So what have you chosen? So first thing I choose would be a memory. I was happy to see um, uh, that you can choose a memory. And mm. what I'd choose to have with me would be the memory of the first few months after I met my wife of today. Uh. So in 2013... I wrote an article for The Guardian. I lived in Poland and I lived in Warsaw, Poland, and I used to write um, articles for The Guardian about Nigeria and about Poland and European politics and things like that. Mm. And I wrote an article for The Guardian on Nigeria's president, sort of assessing the three years in office Nigeria's then president um, uh, had. 
And what I often used to do is I'd go, you know, to the below the line comments on my articles and I'd often engage with people, you know, who commented on the articles if I saw an interesting comment. Mm. And so I wrote this article, you know, and I went uh, as usual, you know, below the line and there was an interesting comment there I saw on the article. I engaged with the person. I didn't know if it's male or female because it was just a nick there. There was no picture. I engaged with the person and we started, you know, having a conversation there about, you know, Nigerian politics, etc. Uh, after a couple of exchanges, I sort of figured out that it was a female. Mm-hmm. And then so I said, oh, you know, why don't we friend each other on Facebook, maybe, and then I continued the discussion there. And so, okay, uh, we friended each other on Facebook. I saw how she looked. I like he. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> that's nice. Um, uh, and then we started chatting on um, uh, Yahoo Messenger. I remember then there was, there was the popular app, Yahoo Messenger. They had great emoticons there. Yeah. <laughs> and we started sort of chatting through this Yahoo Messenger sort of every day, every day, like a couple of times a day, every day, every day. We'd, you know, spend hours on it. Uh, then we started calling each other regularly and everything just sort of clicked. It was like, wow, like, you know that cliche they say everyone has a second half somewhere it really felt like that right it really felt like that that wow you know she thinks the way i think you know (laughs) she sees the world the way i see the world you know she dislikes the same people i dislike you know (laughs) and so and so then then i said okay i'll go to nigeria and meet her after a couple of months and so i flew to lagos and where she lived then because she lived in nigeria then so you know look at the world we live in now i was in poland I was in Warsaw, Poland. I wrote an article for the UK Guardian. Uh, my wife, who lived in Lagos, read the article and we started chatting. Yeah. Amazing. And um, the 21st century world. Yeah. And so I went to Nigeria. And, you know, sometimes, you know, these things, you know, people meet online and it's, it, it's all fine. But then when they meet person to person, you know, it doesn't really work. Mm. Luckily, in our case, when we met person to person, it worked just like it had worked um, online. And, you know, we started um, uh, dating essentially from that time. I spent a couple of um, uh, weeks then in Nigeria. And so I was shuttling between Warsaw and, and Lagos for a year, really. Right. And then we decided to get married in 2014. <laughs> Lovely. So we got married. Yes, we got married in Nigeria in 2014. And then we, you know, again, I was uh, shuttling essentially because I had decided by then I wanted to, you know, go back to academia and uh, do mm-hmm. a PhD in political science, which I'd always had an interest in. And so I moved back to Nigeria briefly. And then I moved with my wife here to the UK, January, 2015. Right. And so we've been here now close to nine years. So that's the story. My wife actually wrote a piece in, in, in the Guardian about how we met because, you know, she, <laughs> she um, pitched it to them and they were quite um, interested in, in, in the fact that they'd actually, you know, created a couple really. Yeah, and it's actually, when you yes. look at the situation, at, at any point that could have fallen apart, couldn't you? you could have given up on, mm, hang on a minute, no, this is too far, oh, which is, yes. is never going to work. Of course, well, my friends, you know, trying to look after my interest, <laughs> my good friends were telling me, hey, come on, man, this is not going to work. I mean, come on, you're here in Warsaw, you know, I mean, she's in Lagos. I mean, you've never even met this girl in real life. I mean, what do you yeah. really know about her? You know, that kind of, that, that kind of, of stuff. Of course, and then once you actually do meet, once yeah. you get together and you start dating, then there's the question of, well, are you willing to change your life for me? Yes. Are you willing yes. to come with me? Yes, I do believe that certain things in our life are sort of like fated. And things sort of mm-hmm. just click together, come together all at once, because it so happened that we met during the period when I had decided, I, I was working as a journalist in Warsaw then, but I decided 
I'd had enough of that mm. and that I want to do a PhD in politics and sort of be around um, academia. And I decided I wanted to do it in the UK. Right. And this was the period during which we met. And so that made it easy because it would have been difficult, for instance, for us to, my wife to come to Poland, you know, she doesn't speak the language, doesn't know the culture, you know, mm. it's not that easy there, uh, especially for someone of color, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, whereas the UK, she had studied here before. She had already lived in the UK once for five years when right. she came to um, university here. So she knew the UK well. I was already thinking about coming to study in the UK. So that sort of just clicked. That's why, like I say, all the parts sort of just came together and everything just fit. And, you know, we could both sort of smoothly come to the UK and it's been lovely, really. Yes. And you were also sort of, you, you were saying, well, look, actually, there is stability here. I'm yes. going to definitely be doing this for the next three, four, yes. maybe five years to do this yes. PhD. So, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and my wife, mm. she was one actually who helped me even choose the university because she found, you know, the supervisor who was aligned with my interests. And she was the one who said, you know, I think you should go with this guy. Lovely. And that's how we ended up in Sheffield. So it's, it's Sheffield we came to. Oh, brilliant. I love Sheffield. Yes, it's yes. Oh, yeah, it's a lovely town. place. Oh, it's a great yeah. town. Exactly. So it's a vibrant city. So people are nice. People are nice here. But, you know, you go into the shops and people say, oh, hi, love, and things like that, you know. I yeah. really find that sweet, really, and, and, yeah, and endearing. Yeah, it's lovely. And especially if, if you hadn't had that before, you know, so no. you wouldn't get that walking into a shop in Poland or in Nigeria. And so, mm. and so yeah, so that felt really nice, yeah. Yeah, fabulous. But also... That what they call the honeymoon period. Yes. After you've just got together. Yes. It lives with you forever. It I does. Think. It does. That's why, like I said, that period, if I could, those months, you know, mm -hmm. I was on a high, man. It was like I was, you know, I don't know but what, what kind of what kind of drug in the world would be able to give you that kind of high. But I was on a yeah. high, I was floating for those mm. for those couple of months. <laughs> yeah. You know. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anybody who's fallen in love knows exactly that feeling. Yes. I've been with my wife now for oh, Good Lord, <laughs> a ridiculously long amount mm. of time. And, you know, we're both older and old, in fact. And we, I do sometimes look at her and think, and I absolutely see that girl that I fell in love with. Mm. And those moments are as, as strong in my memory as anything. I can picture yes. us first holding hands and all those things. And they, they st absolutely stays with you. Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, lovely. Well, let's put that, that feeling and yes. memory into the time yes. capsule for you. Lovely. That's yes. number one. So what's your second thing, Remy? Number two would be, um, uh, again, a memory of watching uh, some mothers do Avam with my mom in Nigeria. <laughs> so you see, in Nigeria, we essentially, I essentially grew up on British TV shows. Mm. So um, cable TV came to Nigeria in, I think, 1993. Before that, um, when I was you know, really a, a kid growing up in the 80s and early 90s, we essentially had a couple of channels on Nigerian TV. So that's mm. what you watched, you know. So there was this Nigerian Television Authority, it was called. So our, our sort of um, equivalent of the BBC. Yeah. And they, probably going back to the colonial days, because Nigeria was obviously a British colony, obviously had most of their sort of licensing, foreign licensing arrangements, I guess, with the BBC. Because almost all the foreign shows they ran were British shows. Yeah. So um, there were a couple of American ones, but really a few, most were British, yeah. So mm. they'd be running material, you know, Faulty Towers, Allo Allo, <laughs> uh, some mothers do have them, and uh, Robin of Sherwood, I still remember. 
Yeah, uh, the yeah. one with Mike, the one with Michael, Michael Prade. Prade, the one with Michael yes. Prade. That was absolutely one of my, you know, childhood sort of favorites. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember some mothers do have them because my mother laughed the loudest at that. <laughs> she laughed the absolutely. Sometimes she'd say, "My God, you know, I'm laughing so hard. I hope I don't pee myself." You know, <laughs> at Frank Spencer's antics. You know, yeah. And and she just loved him, and she just, you know, and I also found him funny. Um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's something special in, you know, sitting down, you know, with a loved one, a parent or a child and watching a TV show you are both really into and either find, I don't know, extremely funny or extremely moving mm-hmm. or that really sort of, you know, you connect with sort of um, emotionally and then you can comment on the characters and, you know, oh, you know, I like him, I don't like her, etc. You know, oh, he's silly, he's an idiot. So that was beautiful. So I distinctly remember that. That was my mom, absolutely fine. I think it was Michael Crawford, I think it was. It was Michael that Crawford, character, yes. Where Frank Spencer... And and Michelle Dutrice, I think. Was Betty. That's right, Betty. Exactly, yes. So yes. Um, so she adored that. Um, she adored that show. And I really remember, um, uh, you know, sitting down watching that with her. It's funny, it's an almost forgotten comedy. Yes, I think so, yes. Forty Towers is very much remembered. Forty Towers is sort of the cult um, uh, show from that time. But there's mm-hmm. many other ones over there. Some of those women's for Allo, Allo, I think is also um, uh, pretty a little bit forgotten. I don't know what you'd, what, what you'd say to that. Uh, well, I think the problem is that sort of uh, having the English policeman spy saying good moning and all that. Yes. Uh, it's funny, but I think there are elements of it now that people yes. would find, would uh, find discomforting. Yes. You know. Discomforting, exactly, yes. Of course, yeah. things have changed. There was Mind Your Language also, of course. Well, quite. And which used to watch, and that's definitely one of the things people would today find fault with. But, you know, I watched it then. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like I say, yeah, Forty Towers, I think, is the one that seems to have lasted as a sort of legendary um, TV show. But there were, you know, quite a few um, good ones back then. Yeah, yeah. The thing I think was sweet and lovely about Some Mothers Do Have Them, it's unusual to have a character that is so inept and yes. so, in a way, weak and yes. useless. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. But you just fall in love with him. You do fall yes. in love with the fact that everything is going to go wrong for him all the time. Yes, yes. But there are scenes in it. What was his baby's name? Do you remember the name? Is it Tabitha? Or, no. Oh, my God, I can't remember. I'm just I laughing now, just thinking of it. But I can't remember. No, I can't remember. I can't remember what the baby was I can't remember about. either, no. Yeah. But the scenes with him talking to his baby... In yes. the cot, yes. and Michael Crawford had a, a wonderful skill yes. to present that sort of genuine emotion. Yes. yes, it wasn't just a comedy, was it? No, it wasn't just a comedy. And I mean, and like you say, you know, there is something in being able to, um, in identifying with someone, you know, who's down on their luck, and you know, and things never really sort of go well for them, and sort of, you know, the antithesis of the sort of, you know strong Superman character out there who is, you know, saving the world and doing, you know, and doing, mm. and doing all that kind of stuff. And I think it also, you know, from, from thinking about it now, obviously then I wasn't thinking about things like this, but thinking about it now, I think it also reflected a bit on sort of the struggles in the British economy at the time, because, you know, those mm-hmm. were tough times uh, here in the UK by UK standards, the 70s, you know, a lot of people were out of work, trying yeah. to get work, you know, not being able to get work and things like that. So I think there was also an element there people could also sort of, you know, identify with. And of course, I think the way he created the character, you know, the body language, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. my mom laughed loudest, you know, not when he said something, but when he'd <laughs> make those faces, you know, he used to make. 
when yes. Betty would get upset with him and he'd, and he'd make those faces. Those were the really hilarious parts there, you know. And, and of course, the physical comedy. I mean, he and was the physical, a, yes. Absolute genius as far as yes. physical comedy was concerned. And he did all those stunts himself, didn't he? Which is wow. amazing. Yes. It was one where he fell through the ceiling. Fell through the ceiling, yes, exactly, because he was always falling and, and destroying places when he'd go look for a job somewhere and things <laughs> like that. Yes, it definitely and was. Um, yeah. I think even at the time, I remember thinking, oh, that must have hurt. Yes. Because he would then get up and go, ooh, Betty. Yes, yeah, and, ooh, Betty. <laughs> and you could almost see the pain in his eyes, thinking, yes. oh, I yes. hope this shot's finished soon so I can get some yeah. medical attention. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, let's put that in. Uh, your mother... Is she the Polish side of your family? Yes, Polish. So my dad got a scholarship to go study in Poland in the 1960s. So, you know, Cold War period. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was when there was, you know, competition between the West and the countries behind um, uh, the so-called um, Iron Curtain or the Soviet bloc. You know, in also trying to win friends and influence people around the world. Yes. And so back then, communist countries were offering quite a significant amount of scholarships to students from Asia and Africa. Mm. So hoping to, you know, get them to come study there. And eventually the, the idea was obviously that these people would go back to their countries. They'd probably, you know, form the middle class or upper middle class or perhaps even get into government in their countries. Mm-hmm. And they'd essentially be friends of the countries they had studied in. Yeah, As we were talking about earlier, they would be the people who'd win the contracts. They'd be yes. the people who'd, who'd win the contracts. And so my mm. dad went to Poland in 1963 uh, from Nigeria to study architecture. Mm. So there was a small community there of of African students, um, perhaps larger than you may imagine, but obviously not very large. And he studied architecture in Warsaw at the time. And the way they met was that my mom was Polish. My mom was a journalist Mm. and she used to write about cultural issues. She worked with a lot of um, interesting people. I don't know if you've heard of a Polish, quite a famous um, Polish travel writer called Richard Kapuscinski. No, I haven't. No. Okay. Very well known anyway, internationally also. So, you know, she worked with him and she met, you know, Roman Polanski, wow. who was then, you know, at the time here in Poland. So, you know, she was, mm. um, she used to meet um, uh, those kinds of people. Yeah. And then my dad became the, I think, president of the African Students Union in Poland. Right. And so my mom was writing a piece on, you know, African students in Poland and their experiences on students in Poland. And that's how they met. Mm. And then later started dating and they got married in Poland in 1968 and then moved to Nigeria in 1970 after my dad had finished at my university. Uh, They had me significantly later. (laughs) And so I grew up in I grew up in Nigeria there, went to primary and secondary school in Nigeria. Both my parents are unfortunately late now. Uh, But my mom essentially spent um, more of her life in Nigeria than she did in Poland. Mm. But she spent um, 40 years in Nigeria with my dad before she passed in um, in 2009. And so, yeah, so I grew up in Nigeria. So it was interesting uh, in a way, you know, weird in some ways. So I grew up in Nigeria, you know, um, this mixed race kid of a Nigerian father and Polish mother. Strongly influenced by the mother. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, essentially, um, uh, in Nigeria. And so I had more contact with her. Mm. Um, uh, my dad used to work a lot. He, he ran uh, his own um, architectural firm. So he was, you know, out the house 7 in the morning, back, you know, 9 p.m. And so I had a strong sort of, you know, influence, you know, from my mom. So my mom would tell me about growing up in Poland and, you know, Polish culture and European culture and, you know, different ways of doing things and seeing things. So I always, you know, every society develops its own moral matrix. Mm. A set of sort of norms, ideas, assumptions around which sort of people build their lives. And if you are in the matrix, you don't know it's a matrix. 
<laughs> it just seems to you like that's just the way it is mm-hmm. because that's the way everybody around me thinks. This mm-hmm. is right, this is wrong, and that's the way it is. Yeah. However, I was never in the matrix because I had my mom at home who would tell me that, look, the way this works in Nigeria, that's not necessarily the way this works around the world. No. Because I can tell you that, for instance, in Poland, this, 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 this works differently from here. Mm-hmm. And so I was never, like I say, in the matrix. And so I was always, I always had that feeling of somehow looking from the outside. Yeah. So while I, of course, you know, grew up with kids there and sort of, you know, mixed with kids and sort of immersed myself in Nigerian culture, I always sort of looked at it a little bit from a distance <laughs> because I had that eye of the outsider of not being inside the matrix. You know, which has its pluses and I guess minuses. There is yeah. some comfort. This is nice to be in a club. It's to be in a club. And there is mm. some comfort in certainty, mm-hmm. however misguided. <laughs> there is some, yes. there is some comfort in certainty, however misguided. I never had that. I never <laughs> no. had that kind of certainty about things. I mm. would always know that, hmm, are you sure? I'm not that sure. Perhaps it works differently or it could work differently, you know. So it was interesting in that way. And yes, but because you asked the question that um, my mom was the Polish one. So yes, my mom was the Polish one, essentially. Yes. And it's interesting that parallel between the commitment that she made to your father and and the commitment your wife has made to you. Yes, very true. And honestly speaking, I thought about it. And there's actually quite a lot of similarities between my wife and my mom. Mm. Character-wise. Right. I thought about it, and it just came to me just sort of one day that, ah, wow, yeah, you know, the way my wife sees X or Y, that's pretty much probably the way my mom would see it, actually. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about it um, before, but later on, it quite came to me. Unfortunately, they never met because my mom had passed before um, I met my wife. Uh, but my wife often says that she would have loved to meet my mom. And I think my mom would have really liked her because mm. they share a sort of quite similar um, uh, sort of worldview and sort of have similar, I'd say, sort of instincts towards people and, and, and the world around them. Lovely. Lovely. Well, you know what they say? Some mothers do have them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you are them. <laughs> so how lovely. Yeah. But well, let's put you and your mum watching that program together mm-hmm. into the time capsule. That's your second yes. thing. Really. That's second one. So yes. what's number three? There you go. I told you he was a fascinating man. Sadly, we have to interrupt this conversation here to play you some ads so that this podcast might make enough money to pay for its making. Lots of makes in that sentence. Still, bear with us. We'll be back shortly. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, and thanks for hanging around. Still, let's hurry back to Remy Adekoya and discover what else he'd like to have in his time capsule. Third one would be connected with my dad. And again, it's mm-hmm. watching a show, and it happens to be, uh, interestingly, a British show. My dad uh, was one of those people who the only thing he watched on TV was the news. Mm-hmm. So he was one of those people who, who thought, you know, TV shows and movies, that's, that, that's a waste of time, you know. I, th- <laughs> I think you can boil down my dad's creed to all work and no play makes Jack a clever boy. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, so you should be studying, you should be doing something useful, productive and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there's one TV show my dad liked because of the fact that he loved politics. And I think I inherited my interest in politics from him, or perhaps I just developed an interest in it to try and bond with him. Yeah. And that's Yes Minister. <laughs> you remember that show, Yes Minister? I do. And so, like I said, my dad used to, you know, be home, you know, 8 p.m., sometimes 9 p.m. at night. And I think the news was on at 9 p.m. And then from around, you know, quarter to 10 or 10, they'd play some of these shows. And that's when they used to show um, a Yes Minister. Mm. And very often, you know, after we'd had dinner, my mom, you know, would have gone to bed and I'd sit with my dad and we'd watch Yes Minister together. That was the only TV show he was interested in watching. And that's because it was about politics. And he also found it hilarious, you know, and he'd laugh a lot. And of course, I didn't really get many of the sort of, um, um, the deeper sort of jokes behind the jokes, you know, about politics and how things work, etc. So, you know, I'd laugh along with him. Some of them I got, some I didn't, but I'd laugh along with him. Um, I remember, of course, Sir Humphrey. I think that was played by Nigel Hawthorne. That's right. Absolutely probably my favorite character. I mean, I think absolutely one of the most brilliant performances ever given in TV, you know, the way he played that character of a permanent secretary. Yeah, I think you might well be right. Of a permanent it was absolutely um, a genius, you know, I think. And uh, my dad, you know, loved him a lot. And, you know, and so, you know, during watching it, you know, my dad would say, oh, you know, we then start talking about politics, maybe um, afterwards, you know, how perhaps politics differs in different countries and, you know, how things mm. work. So that's an experience I really remember. And like I say, it, it was some of one of the few moments when I could actually bond with my dad. Yeah. by watching that show. And then after that, you know, we discussed politics. Politics was really probably the only thing me and my dad ever talked about. So yeah, like I say, he, he worked a lot. Um, uh, he believed in, you know, all work and no place is a good thing. Well, uh, where had he come from? And he had to, in a way, stick to that rule in order to get to where he got. Yeah, my dad, he, he'd grown up um, very poor in colonial Nigeria. I was born to a very poor family. But that sort of explains it, doesn't it, really? If you're going to get out of that, yes, you definitely. are going to just get your head down and work hard. Yes, definitely. And mm. in this case, you know, probably would never have gotten a higher education if not for the missionary movements, you know, in Nigeria. Right. So one yeah. day, you know, um, some missionaries knocked on his uh, father's door and said, um, Irish missionaries, I think it was, and said, you know, we've just built a school. It's free. Um, uh, would you be interested in enrolling um, your child there? And, you know, because it was free, my dad's dad, my grandfather said, OK, why not? 
And that's how my dad went to mm-hmm. primary secondary school. And then he went to an earlier um, college kind of thing before he went mm-hmm. to um, study um, architecture in Poland. So there was a strong influence in him. He often used to speak fondly of the um, Catholic priests, of the Irish Catholic priests who'd been mm. in charge of the school. And I think they sort of instilled in him uh, that kind of discipline thing, you know, yes. that he really believed in that kind of, you know, discipline, work, sacrifice, responsibility. Mm. One thing I have to give him, he was a very, very responsible It's a bit emotional now. Um, he was a very, um, he had, you know, his own faults like we all do, but he was um, somebody who took his responsibilities very seriously. Yes. One, you know, one of those kind of, you know, life is a duty kind of people and, you know, duty first. Hmm. And so, yeah, so that was what, that was, that was the kind of person he was essentially. Yes. Having come from a situation where he, he probably would have seen people let their children down, as it were, um, not take on those responsibilities. Mm. And so, you know, as you do in, in poor situations quite often, but not only poor situations, that's an absurd statement, but as you often see, if, and that sort of, well, I am not going to be that man. That takes yes. an effort. It takes a determination. Definitely. And, and in a way, as you say, it can overcome everything else. So I'm not going to sit and laugh at yes. television programs. So it must have been mm-hmm. quite a joy to have that one thing that mm-hmm. you would sit there and watch him laugh at. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Anytime I wanted to strike up a conversation with him, I would know to ask something about a political issue. Mm-hmm. Or he was also generally well read uh, in the you know, classics and things like that and history. He right. was he was he was good with you know sort of history of the Roman Empire and things like that. My mom said that's one of the things that impressed him about her. She said is how much he knew, how much mm. he knew. She used mm. to tell me that, uh, and she especially as a journalist was impressed by that. So he'd like very much. He liked he liked giving lectures. <laughs> so if you'd ask him, <laughs> so if I wanted if I wanted to if I wanted to put him in a good mood and strike up a conversation with him, I could say, "Oh, Dad, so you know what caused the fall of the Roman Empire?" You know, and then he could he could he could he could speak for two hours. He said, "Ah, well, you see how it started was you know." <laughs> and then, yes, and then he could talk for two hours, and he was quite happy with himself. And then after that, we could have some small um, talk on the side. So I always knew that you know to get him talking and get him in a good mood, either ask him something about you know, politics or something about history like that, yes. Mm, yes. But did that also make him a very strict father, though? Oh, he was definitely. He was definitely a very strict father. You know, if I'm being um, sort of, you know, honest here, um, for watch of my childhood, I had mostly negative feelings towards him. Right. And uh, much preferred my mom, you know, and, and being with my mom and actually preferred when my dad wasn't at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, when you have that kind of person who, like you say, is strict, who believes, you know, all, all work and no play makes Jack a clever boy, mm. uh, it, it can be stifling. Yeah, because, you know, if yeah. you're just sitting doing nothing, he thinks it's a waste of time. You should be studying or doing mm. something like that. And so obviously no kid wants to be around. At least I definitely didn't want to be around around him much of the time. Now, no. of course, looking at it from the perspective of being an adult you know, um, hopefully as we get older, we grow more forgiving and we sort of understand that, you know, people really are the products of their own experiences mm-hmm. and they really can't give things they never got. No. Or it's very difficult for them to give things they never got. Some people are able to, you know, through intuition or some kind of extreme empathy, learn how to, as adults, give things they never got as children. Yes. Some people are able to do that, but it's a gift, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was obviously brought up in a very strict um, manner. So, you know, that was what he knew. 
you know, that mm. was what he knew and that was all he could give. And it was his way of giving love. In a and way. it was his way, probably, yes, um, of, mm. giving, of giving love. I'll tell you something just to show you um, the kind of person he was. I um, once, you know, towards the end of his life, uh, I asked him, uh, Dad, when do you feel happiest? What makes you happy? And what shocked me about it was that it took him about a minute to answer because he had never thought of it before. Uh, he had never thought of it before. No. And then after that, so he said, what makes me happy? Uh, well, I, um, I guess when I'm walking, that's when I feel uh, happiest. Yes, well, when I'm walking, that's when I feel happiest. That's mm. what he told me, when I'm doing my walk. And what really shocked me was not even that he said uh, that it was work that made him happiest, but that he had to think about it. You yeah. know, most of us now, and especially here in the West, and this is again a, a, a big difference between sort of, you know, life in the West and life elsewhere. People in the West, you know, focus a lot on their individual happiness. Yes. And, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old kids are already thinking, oh, am I happy? Am I not happy? Why am I not happy? You know, <laughs> <laughs> at 20, 30, oh, why am I not happy? I should be happy, you know. Mm. And in many parts of the world, for someone like my dad, you don't even think about things like that. No, it's a luxury you can't afford. It's, it's a luxury. Yeah. There's an individual happiness. You never thought about that. No. What he thought about is, you know, what do you do? How do I take care of my family? How do I fulfill my responsibilities and things like that? You know. Well, for many people, am I hungry? Oh, for many people, yes, if you're in a desperate situation. Mm. But for many people, I'd say in the non-Western parts of the world, you know, that I've traveled to, you know, places I've seen, and especially definitely, you know, in Africa, um, people don't focus on their individual happiness. They don't focus on their individual happiness. It's not that they wouldn't like to be happy, uh, but they don't focus on it, A. And B, people are often more focused on the happiness of the people around them. Right. So they, their families, yeah. you know. So a, 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 a Nigerian father, for him, happiness will be, oh, seeing my children happy or seeing my family happy. Uh, how do I make them happy? Well, by providing them um, uh, material comforts and making sure they're well taken care of. That's how to make them happy. Yes, and make sure that they're successful. And make sure that they're successful. Yes. That, that's people's understanding of it, you know. They don't go into those sort of deep sort of philosophical um, uh, kinds of discussions which people have here of, oh, what is happiness? <laughs> what is real happiness? Is there a point to this? Is there no point to this life? And all those kinds of things. So, yeah, mm. so that was the kind of person my dad, what he, and I asked him this when he was uh, 70 or 71, and he'd never thought of it. He'd never thought Amazing. of it. Yeah, well, that's a that's a dedicated life. Yes, clearly, had hardly ever thought of himself. Yes, yes, yes. So, like I say, so these are. Uh-huh. So, I was talking about how I hopefully, you know, as we get older, we sort of become more forgiving. So, these mm-hmm. are the things. So, I try to think of his positive sides. Yeah, and and to the fact that okay, fine, you know, um, uh, he may have been that way with me, but that's also the way he was with himself. Yes, because the worst people, I would say, are the people who are good to themselves but bad to others. And yeah. they're strict with others, but lax on themselves. Demand more of others than they do of themselves. Mm-hmm. Those are those are the worst kind of people, you know. Yeah. So the people who um, may demand more of others, but even more of themselves, I can understand. I, I can respect that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I played I played the Jim Hacker part in the West End for Yes Prime Minister. Yes Prime Minister oh, wow. was turned into a play. Oh wow, that was was the sequel. Yes, yeah. Oh wow, yeah, wow. And it was um, it was directed by Jonathan Lynn, who okay. wrote it. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. The fun. writing the writing was brilliant also. I mean it's brilliant so did, writing, did that yeah. guy did that guy was he in policy? I mean, how did he know all that stuff? That's like I, insider stuff that you know people who work in ministries know. I don't know. He was a very bright man. 
Yeah. He really knew his stuff. You know, he mm. knew his comedy. He was a very good writer. Yeah. Very, yeah. very detailed. Everything he did was very detailed. Very detailed. Because yeah. it, it really sort of, I think, re- realistically reflected, you know, that that thing that happens, you know, when a minister comes and they think they're going to do this and do that. And, you know, mm. and the perm secretary tells them, hang on a minute. You know, <laughs> there's this to think about and that to think about. And they go, oh, well, ah, OK. You know. Yes. Yeah. You wonder if, in fact, ministers listen to those people now because we look at the way things yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, it, it would be interesting to know sort of, you know, um, uh, how, how it works now. But, you know, permanent perm sex, they, they definitely outlive ministers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they see, you know, ministers come and go. Yes. You know. At the moment in this country, particularly education ministers. Education ministers, exactly. So <laughs> so ministers come and go, you know, the perm sex remain. And I, I think they, they just try to manage the ministers. Yes. Know? Yeah. Quite <laughs> corral them. Uh, Marvellous. Okay, well, let's put Yes Minister Mm -hmm. into the time capsule for you and you watching it with your dad. How lovely. Okay, we've got two left. We've got one you want to keep and one you'd like to bury and forget. Yes. So another one I'd like to keep, so that's from a sporting event, again, a memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would be the, um, if I could compress together, the semifinals and the finals of the Atlanta 96 um, football tournament, the Olympics Mm -hmm. in Atlanta 96. Nigeria won the gold medal in, in football there. Yes, And that's the biggest thing we've, we've ever won in football. Mm. And apart from just the fact that we won the gold medal, just sort of, you know, how it happened. So the semifinals, so this was 1996. So I, I, I had just finished secondary school and moved to Poland there. So I was in Warsaw. And so, you know, the Olympics were going on in the US. And so I think the game started, you know, 2 a.m. or something Polish time. <laughs> and so, we're, you know, we're playing Brazil in the semifinals. And, you know, this was a Brazilian squad that came with Ronaldo, Brazilian mm-hmm. Ronaldo. Um, uh, then Roberto Carlos, uh, Dida, I think, was the goalkeeper, um, Consensao, Juninho, uh, and was coached by the legendary Mario Zagallo. <laughs> that that squad in 96. Yeah. And so I, I I was supposed to wait up for the Brazil game. I had a couple of bears, went to sleep. By the time I woke up, it's 20 minutes left in the game. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I woke up maybe like 3 a.m. or something. Yeah. And I wake up, it's 20 minutes left, and we're losing 3-1 to Brazil. And so I'm like, ah, you know, well, mm. you know, probably to be expected, unfortunately, you know, that's that's that. Yeah. And then 78th minute or 79th minute, uh, we score... Victor Ekweba, a Nigerian player who played for Monaco, you know, he scores and it's 3 2. I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. Well, you know, 3 2 is better than 3 1. You know, at least we went out with some honor. <laughs> and then 90 minutes comes <laughs> and uh, Kano Wanko, who played for Arsenal later yeah. on, great player, equal, equalizes and it's 3 3. And I just go berserk. <laughs> and then four minutes later, in the 94th minute, Kano again scores a brilliant goal from inside the penalty box. You know, there was no space, like four, five players, Brazilian players behind him. And somehow he manages to do something with his feet and put the ball in the net. <laughs> and so we beat Brazil. So we come down from 1-3, 20 minutes to the game, to beat a Brazilian team like that with those kind of players, 4-3 in the mm. semifinals. And I went absolutely berserk in, in, in the apartment there with, with, with my brother who I lived with um, uh, then in Warsaw, like just jumping crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. I'll never forget that. No. We won the final also, which was against Argentina oh. and also came back from behind twice and won that final. But to be honest with you, it's actually that Brazil semifinal that really stuck with me because yeah. maybe of the way it happened. Like I say, that I woke up 20 minutes to the end. We're losing 3-1. I think that's it. And in the space of 25 minutes, you know, 
when football heaven basically is like, we're beating <laughs> Brazil 4-3 and we're in the finals of the Olympics, you know. Absolutely fantastic. And, you know, the great thing about, you know, these sporting events and I think why they mean so much, um, uh, you know, to nations really, mm. apart from that sense of togetherness, which, which they create, that kind of a national um, a unity, is that they make everything seem possible for the nation. Mm. You know, when a nation has gone out and won a major sporting event that, you know, really means things to people, you know, it could mean cricket to some people in some nations. It could be football to some people in some nations. But what matters is that it means something to people of that nation, that it's the number one sport. When that happens and that nation, you know, becomes, you know, best in the world and that, you know, wins something major like that. It's as if, you know, we as a nation can do anything. Mm. That's the feeling. We mm. can do anything. Wow. If we could do that, we can probably, you know build a kick-ass economy, fly someone to the moon and do everything else there is to do out there, you know, because we've just, it's that feeling, it's a feeling, you know, right. and, and it's a beautiful feeling. Uh, it's not just the unity thing, it's that feeling that, wow, we can do anything, just look mm. at what we've accomplished, you know. That very thing that very early on in our conversation you were saying is what's lacking yes. is the assumption that, well, they'll decide because they're the ones who are successful. Yes. They're the ones who yes. make the decisions. Who make the and decisions. And we just follow. Yes. And suddenly you go, no, we can do it ourselves. Exactly. We can do it. And, you know, and to, you know, to win, obviously, in that kind of something, to beat teams like that, you know, like mm -hmm. I say to that, you beat Brazil in the semis and you beat Argentina in the final. So you've done it all. Nothing more could have been asked of you, you know. No. And, and, and so it's a great feeling, you know, national pride, you know, there's, of course, you know, we all know sort of, you know, the extremes of, you know, nationalism and all these kinds of things. But, you know, but, but there is a beauty. There is a beauty in collective pride. Yes. And there is a strength you can draw on from that later on in life. And yeah. I think that's why people invest emotionally a lot, invest themselves emotionally a lot often, you know, in their groups and, you know, their nations. And that's why these things mean something. Because, you know, if you have that feeling that, you know, my nation has done great things, even in the past, mm. you can use that. You can, you can, you can plug into that on your own individual level and think, oh, you know, so if, if my people, quote unquote, could do that, why can't I do this? Mm -hmm. There's a real positive to, to be drawn from that. And I think it is why often sometimes um, nations, you know, it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating cycle sometimes that you find nations that are so successful in so many things, you know, because, you know, one generation came, did something, uh, the next generation were inspired. I'm thinking, you know, well, you know, if our fathers and mothers could do that, then yeah. we also can. And yeah. they do great things. And then, yeah. you know, that's how it goes. Absolutely. Look at Kenyan runners. and uh, Exactly. Sort of thing. Just have one great runner comes along and then suddenly yeah. everybody can do it. Everybody can do it, you know. And, and, and I think that's probably how it started, you know, with nations like Brazil playing football. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and they produce one great team, you know, that, that's one. And they produce a Pele. And everybody thinks, oh, wow, you know, so we can do this. You know, we... Yes, this is a standard I have to live up to. This is standard to live up to exactly you know mm. the standards are really important and aspiration is really important you know yeah and 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 like i say it's it's a feeling really it's a feeling that i can that's mm. what i think you know obama you know sort of um, keyed into with that his famous slogan of yes we can yeah if people believe yes we can they can become unstoppable really Yes. And that must have been so reinforced with something that I now thinking about it think would be marvellous in all other competitions, mm. which is that when Nigeria were presented with the gold medal, mm. they stood on the top of the podium <coughs> with <coughs> Argentina on one side. And I should imagine almost... Brazil, yeah, Brazil won the third place match. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then they play the Nigerian national anthem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that would reinforce that feeling of, well, hang on a second. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can.
Brilliant. That's oh. fantastic. <laughs> oh, Remy, that's, uh, you, you made me tingle with, with the thought of it. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's put in the thing you want to bury and forget then, you know, and hopefully that won't bring us down too much. <laughs> yeah, no, the thing, thing I'd probably um, uh, like to bury, honestly speaking, is um, uh, Twitter. <laughs> that's a thing which I'd probably um, I'd like to get rid of. Not all social media, definitely not internet. I think the internet, I mean, there's so many great things out there, so much knowledge out there. You know, mm-hmm. which people can access, you know, once you have access, you know, to a, to a device that can go online, people can access all over the world. So, you know, there's, of course, downsides also to that Internet. But I'd say the pluses far outweigh the minuses. Yes. If we're talking about the Internet, mm-hmm. if we're talking about social media as a whole, I also think there's a lot of social media that are fine. There's some bad sides there, but they are not really, really the, the, the good still outweighs the bad. Right. Um, but I think Twitter, which is the only um, social media I'm active on, actually <laughs> does the most damage to mm-hmm. our politics and to polarization. You know, I'm only on it because I feel I have to be, which only makes me dislike it more. Um, <laughs> because as someone, as someone, you know, who writes um, and wants to get his ideas out there, unfortunately, Twitter is not something I can afford to not be on. You know. No. And of course, you'd also be required to engage with people if they disagree. To yes. an extent, you'll spend your time on there arguing your case against yes. people who don't necessarily want to listen. Of course. So, mm. but, so, so Twitter is something which sort of I need to be on. I remember I resisted for a long time joining any social media, even Facebook or Twitter. I think it was in 2011 um, uh, when I was working in journalism in Poland and our editor-in-chief essentially told us, look, journalists, you all have to have social media accounts because yep. you have to. And you have to tweet our stories and all that out there. So I was forced into it, really. Yeah. And so, okay, but fine, once I was in it, okay, let's try and make the best of it. And so Twitter, I think, you know, is terrible with regards to how it polarizes people, with regards to the incentive structure there, which is, you know, to be as radical as possible because that's mm-hmm. where you get the rewards from. Yeah. It exploits our weaknesses. That's one of the things which I, I dislike about it. It exploits our desire for attention. Mm-hmm. It exploits our desire, you know, to feel important by creating this sort of hierarchy that's based on your metrics. Yes. Why can't we have a Twitter in which nobody sees how many retweets or likes a post has gotten? Uh, Why do I have to see that? Mm-hmm. Why can't I just go onto Twitter and, you know, there's people I follow and I see a post and I think, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, that's actually really great. That's got me thinking. And I move on without seeing if it's gotten 5,000 retweets or two retweets. No, you or see? seeing how many people actually follow that person. Or, or seeing how many people actually follow that person or those yeah, metrics. Or, or whether they've got a blue tick. Or whether they've got a blue tick or not. I shouldn't mm. need to have to see that. The reason those metrics are put in place is to exploit our weaknesses, like I say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, desire for to feel important is to create a competition between us, to put us in a rat race. I'm not important, but at least I'm friends with people who are. Well, I'm friends with people who are important. And to create a rat race where we're yeah, all yeah. there, you know, trying to get, you know, the most retweets and the most likes and to have more followers than others. And we're all fighting with each other just to do mm-hmm. that. While, you know, Big Brother, or what you want to call the big tech companies, just sit back and laugh and just watch us, you know, go at each other. And, you know, they have their metric systems there and that's how they keep us going. Because yeah. if those metric systems weren't there, you wouldn't have people getting on tweeting stuff just to get retweets because there'd be no retweets. People would tweet what they really think. 
you know, mm-hmm. because the worst thing I find uh, often about a public debate now is when people tweet things that they actually don't even really believe themselves. Right. But they simply know that, you know, others it's might gonna believe get a reaction. This. It's yeah, going to yeah. get a reaction. Mm. Either I might provoke somebody, yeah, because it's all about emotions. A lot of mm. it is about anger. So oh, I'm going to provoke group X or Y. So I'm going to write this about group X or Y. And probably some people from group X or Y are going to get pissed off and they're going to respond. And that, of course, gives me engagement. Oh, yes. oh, let me write this. Let me post this. I don't really believe it, but I know a lot of people do. So if mm-hmm. I put it on, those people are going to retweet and say, oh, yeah, you know, Remy is such a clever guy, you know, and um, he's our guy. Yes, that happens all the time, particularly with people who are putting up radical ideas. Or of course. Fact, I mean, when I say radical, I mean wrong. Of course, wrong. Yes. yes. Or radical or wrong or just provocative stuff out there just yeah, to yeah. get a reaction because that's the way the incentive structure works because mm-hmm. there is no incentive to be nuanced. Because nuance doesn't trigger emotions. And, you know, emotions are what get people going, Mm. positive or negative. And negative emotions get people engaged. The worst thing is that it has real-life implications because it would be okay if this was just stuff going on on Twitter and then that's it. But it has Mm. real-life implications because, you know, people read some posts that is deliberately provocative or, you know, some short film has been manipulated to try and show you that, you know, this group of people hate you or that group of people are monsters or are demons practically, etc. And, you know, mm. people read this and, you know, and they start to feel these emotions, you know, that, oh, yes, you know, these people are horrible people. These people are evil people or these people mm. are idiots. These people are stupid people, etc., etc. you know. And these have implications later in how people vote in how people see others and in how they feel about sort of themselves, I think, you know, and, and the world, you know. And so sometimes I, I deliberately try to take a break, you know, um, uh, um, from Twitter because, you know, it's not like I'm immune to all this. You know, I'm not talking <laughs> no. like some guy who's, you know, I've seen all this and, you know, I'm this robot and, you know, I never get angry or, or, or pissed off when I see uh, a tweet that um, provokes me or is supposed to provoke people like me. Of course I do. Yes. But I don't like the feeling. I don't like the feeling. You know, I no, read something and I, and I start feeling angry. And then I'm like, Jesus Christ, what am I getting angry about? Somebody who I've never met in my life has tweeted <laughs> something. This person doesn't know me. I don't know the person. And they've tweeted <laughs> something and all of a sudden I'm getting worked up. You know, yes. what, 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 what's, the point? what's the point of this? It's very and so true. I take a break. Yeah, but, good, but it's easy good. to get caught up in it. It is. I live in a world in Twitter which, to a large extent, is very nice. Yes. So unfortunately, political Twitter especially is very, a lot of negative emotions out there. Mm. And if you don't sort of, you know, guard your, if you don't, you know, the, the verse in the Bible, um, which I like on, you know, guarding your heart, you have to guard your peace. Right. You know, and you really have to make a conscious effort to do it. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, you know, you're human. And negative emotions are very infectious. Yeah, mm. very, very infectious. And if yeah. you don't guard yourself against them, if you don't guard your peace you will find yourself, you know, also getting into it and, you know, and you just become part of the problem. Yes, quite. Well, for you, Remy, I will take that awful Twitter and I will lock it away. <laughs> and, and you won't have to get involved in it anymore. Uh, your tweet and everybody will go, what a lovely idea, Remy. How beautifully put in only 140 characters. I'm so impressed. That's yes. what you'll get. That's the constant reaction you'll get. It's going to be lovely. <laughs> and, uh, and that would be the right reaction because it's fantastic to listen to you. I, I really love your work and I love listening to you talk. So um, it's so nice to have a view of the world that is not colloquial. So thank you thank very you. much for doing this it's a real joy thanks Mike it was a pleasure you have been listening to My Time Capsule 
with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Remy Adekoya. I hope you enjoyed this episode. There are links in the description of this episode to Remy's books and to Acast Plus, where you can get this podcast ad-free. Do rate or review this show and maybe subscribe to it for more episodes. And please tell your friends as well, as it's lovely to get a personal recommendation. You can chat to me on social media, where I'm generally found just by using my name. Or you can chat to John, our producer, who can be contacted through the My Time Capsule name on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We're both very pleased to hear from listeners and happy to chat. John, our producer, and coincidentally my son, also wrote and produced the theme tune under the guise of Pass the Peas music. So if you like it and are looking for some music yourself, then get in touch. He's talented, amazingly quick, fun to work with, and surprisingly affordable. If you'd like to listen to the theme tune in more detail, then the full piece is available on Spotify. This was a cast-off production produced by the aforesaid John Fenton Stevens, who, as well as taking on the responsibility this podcast gives him, has also taken on two little kittens. Ah, yeah. No, seriously. (laughs) He's like the mother cat. He told me he'd given them both a bath the other day. I said, well, that must have been a struggle. But apparently they loved it. It just sat there purring the whole time. He did say the fur tended to stick to his tongue and ended up as fur balls, but he's very dedicated. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.